Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads, where in every episode I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. And I know that you all, in one way or another, have heard of the author of this two-part episode. Ted Chang wrote an amazing story called Story of Your Life that became the movie Arrival. He's released several acclaimed collections of stories. Today's story is The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate, and it's from Exhalation, a collection by Ted Chang, published by Penguin Random House Audio, an imprint of Penguin Publishing Group. Ted's work grapples with the nature of humanity and the universe. You know, small little subjects like that. He carefully constructs stories that build and bring us to an epiphany. And this is a story about uh, time travel told in an Arabian Nights style and set in a mythical ancient Baghdad. Mr. Chang has said that he was inspired to write this story after hearing a talk by the physicist Kip Thorne on applying time dilation to wormholes. Now, you know I spend a lot of my time sitting around thinking about how to apply time dilation to wormholes because that's just my thing. Uh Uh-huh. Anyway, Dr. Thorne proposed that in theory one could create a time machine that obeyed Einstein's theory of relativity and that if one created or obtained a small wormhole, you could connect two points in space as if there was no separation by any distance at all. The wormhole would act as a pair of doors, and what went in one door would come out the other at a fixed point in time. Now Mr. Chang has taken that idea and used it in this story to what I feel is an astounding result. We meet our narrator, Fuad, as he addresses the caliph, who was considered the successor to the Prophet Muhammad and was both the religious and political leader of the Muslim world. Now, if you've ever sat and considered time travel and its capabilities, it becomes this very personal thought experiment. Who would I want to meet? What would I change in my past or my future? 
Could I change the past or the future? Would this mean something better for me, for my family and loved ones? Or would I be walking into something worse? And I encourage you to keep pondering all of that as you listen. So, now if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. And begin. The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate by Ted Chiang. O mighty Caliph and commander of the faithful, I am humbled to be in the splendor of your presence. A man can hope for no greater blessing as long as he lives. The story I have to tell is truly a strange one, and were the entirety to be tattooed at the corner of one's eye, the marvel of its presentation would not exceed that of the events recounted, for it is a warning to those who would be warned, and a lesson to those who would learn. My name is Fuad ibn Abbas. And I was born here in Baghdad, city of peace. My father was a grain merchant, but for much of my life I have worked as a purveyor of fine fabrics, trading in silk from Damascus and linen from Egypt and scarves from Morocco that are embroidered with gold. I was prosperous, but my heart was troubled, and neither the purchase of luxuries nor the giving of alms was able to soothe it. Now, I stand before you without a single dirham in my purse. But, I am at peace. Allah is the beginning of all things, but with your majesty's permission, I begin my story with the day I took a walk through the district of metalsmiths. I needed to purchase a gift for a man I had to do business with and had been told he might appreciate a tray made of silver. After browsing for half an hour, I noticed that one of the largest shops in the market had been taken over by a new merchant. It was a prized location that must have been expensive to acquire, so I entered to peruse its wares. Never before had I seen such a marvelous assortment of goods. Near the entrance there was an astrolabe equipped with seven plates inlaid with silver, a water clock that chimed on the hour, and a nightingale made of brass that sang when the wind blew. Farther inside, there were even more ingenious mechanisms, and I stared at them the way a child watches a juggler when an old man stepped out from a doorway in the back. Welcome to my humble shop, my lord, he said. My name is Bashrat. How may I assist you? 
These are remarkable items that you have for sale. I deal with traders from every corner of the world, and yet I have never seen their like. From where, may I ask, did you acquire your merchandise? I am grateful to you for your kind words, he said. Everything you see here was made in my workshop by myself or by my assistants under my direction. I was impressed that this man could be so well-versed in so many arts. I asked him about the various instruments in his shop and listened to him discourse learnedly about astrology, mathematics, geomancy, and medicine. We spoke for over an hour, and my fascination and respect bloomed like a flower warmed by the dawn. Until he mentioned his experiments in alchemy. Alchemy, I said. This surprised me, for he did not seem the type to make such a sharper's claim. You mean you can turn base metal into gold? I can, my lord. But that is not, in fact, what most seek from alchemy. What do most seek, then? They seek a source of gold that is cheaper than mining ore from the ground. Alchemy does describe a means to make gold, but the procedure is so arduous that, by comparison, digging beneath a mountain is as easy as plucking peaches from a tree. I smiled. A clever reply. No one could dispute that you are a learned man, but I know better than to credit alchemy. Bashrat looked at me and considered, I have recently built something that may change your opinion. You would be the first person I have shown it to. Would you care to see it? It would be a great pleasure. Please, follow me. He led me through the doorway in the rear of his shop. The next room was a workshop, arrayed with devices whose functions I could not guess. Bars of metal wrapped with enough copper thread to reach the horizon. Mirrors mounted on a circular slab of granite floating in quicksilver. But Mashrat walked past these without a glance. Instead, he led me to a sturdy pedestal chest high, on which a stout metal hoop was mounted upright. The hoop's opening was as wide as two outstretched hands, and its rim so thick that it would tax the strongest man to carry. The metal was black as night, but polished to such smoothness that had it been a different color, it could have served as a mirror. Bashrat bade me to stand so that I looked upon the hoop edgewise while he stood next to its opening. Please observe, he said. Bashrat thrust his arm through the hoop from the right side. But it did not extend out from the left. Instead, it was as if his arm were severed at the elbow, and he waved the stump up and down and then pulled his arm out intact. I had not expected to see such a learned man perform a conjurer's trick, but it was well done, and I applauded politely. Now... 
Wait a moment, he said as he took a step back. I waited, and behold, an arm reached out of the hoop from its left side without a body to hold it up. The sleeve it wore matched Bashrat's robe. The arm waved up and down and then retreated through the hoop until it was gone. The first trick, I had thought a clever mime, but this one seemed far superior because the pedestal and hoop were clearly too slender to conceal a person. Very clever, I exclaimed. Thank you, but this is not mere sleight of hand. The right side of the hoop precedes the left by several seconds. To pass through the hoop is to cross that duration instantly. I do not understand, I said. Let me repeat the demonstration. Again, he thrust his arm through the hoop and his arm disappeared. He smiled and pulled back and forth as if playing tug-a-rope. Then he pulled his arm out again and presented his hand to me with the palm open. On it lay a ring I recognized. That is my ring! I checked my hand and saw that my ring still lay on my finger. You have conjured up a duplicate. No, this is truly your ring. Wait. Again, an arm reached out from the left side. Wishing to discover the mechanism of the trick, I rushed over to grab it by the hand. It was not a false hand, but one fully warm and alive as mine. I pulled on it, and it pulled back. Then, as deft as a pickpocket, the hand slipped the ring from my finger and the arm withdrew into the hoop, vanishing completely. My ring is gone, I exclaimed. No, my lord, he said, your ring is here. And he gave me the ring he held. Forgive me for my game. I replaced it on my finger. You had the ring before it was taken from me. At that moment, an arm reached out, this time from the right side of the hoop. What is this? I exclaimed. Again, I recognized it as his by the sleeve before it withdrew, but I had not seen him reach in. Recall, he said, the right side of the hoop precedes the left. And he walked over to the left side of the hoop and thrust his arm through from that side, and again it disappeared. Your Majesty has undoubtedly already grasped this, but it was only then that I understood. What happened on the right side of the hoop was complemented a few seconds later by an event on the left side. Is this sorcery? I asked. No, my lord. I have never met a genie, and if I did, I would not trust it to do my bidding. This is a form of alchemy. He offered an explanation, speaking of his search for tiny pores in the skin of reality, like the holes that worms bore into wood, and how, upon finding one, he was able to expand and stretch it, the way a glassblower turns a dollop of molten glass 
into a long-necked pipe, and how he then allowed time to flow like water at one mouth while causing it to thicken like syrup at the other. I confess, I did not really understand his words and cannot testify to their truth. All I could say in response was, You have created something truly astonishing. Thank you, he said. But this is merely a prelude to what I intended to show you. He bade me follow him into another room, farther in the back. There stood a circular doorway whose massive frame was made of the same polished black metal mounted in the middle of the room. What I showed you before was a gate of seconds, he said. This is a gate of years. The two sides of the doorway are separated by a span of twenty years. I confess, I did not understand his remark immediately. I imagined him reaching his arm in from the right side and waiting twenty years before it emerged from the left side, and it seemed a very obscure magic trick. I said as much, and he laughed. <laughs> that is one use for it, he said. But consider what would happen if you were to step through. Standing on the right side, he gestured for me to come closer and then pointed through the doorway. Look! I looked and saw that there appeared to be different rugs and pillows on the other side of the room than I had seen when I had entered. I moved my head from side to side and realized that when I peered through the doorway, I was looking at a different room from the one I stood in. You are seeing the room twenty years from now, said Bashrat. I blinked as one might at an illusion of water in the desert, but what I saw did not change. And you say I could step through, I asked. You could... And with that step, you would visit the Baghdad of twenty years hence. You could seek out your older self and have a conversation with him. Afterwards, you could step back through the gate of years and return to the present day. Hearing Bashrat's words, I felt as if I were reeling. You have done this? I asked him, you have stepped through? I have, and so have numerous customers of mine. Earlier you said I was the first to whom you showed this. This gate, yes, but for many years I owned a shop in Cairo, and it was there that I first built a gate of years. There were many to whom I showed that gate and who made use of it. What did they learn when talking to their older selves? Each person learns something different. If you wish, I can tell you the story of one such person. Bashrat proceeded to tell me such a story, and if it pleases your majesty, I will recount it here. The Tale of the Fortunate Rope Maker 
There was once a young man named Hassan, who was a maker of rope. He stepped through the gate of years to see the Cairo of twenty years later, and upon arriving, he marveled at how the city had grown. He felt as if he had stepped into a scene embroidered on a tapestry, and even though the city was no more and no less than Cairo, he looked upon the most common sights as objects of wonder. He was wandering by the Zuela Gate, where the sword dancers and snake charmers perform, when an astrologer called to him. Young man, do you wish to know the future? Hassan laughed. I know it already, he said. Surely you want to know if wealth awaits you, do you not? I am a rope maker. I know that it does not. Can you be so sure? What about the renowned merchant Hassan al-Hubo, who began as a rope maker? His curiosity aroused, Hassan asked around the market for others who knew of this wealthy merchant and found that the name was well known. It was said he lived in the wealthy Habanya quarter of the city, so Hassan walked there and asked people to point out his house, which turned out to be the largest one on its street. He knocked at the door, and a servant led him to a spacious and well-appointed hall with a fountain in the center. Hassan waited while the servant went to fetch his master, but as he looked at the polished ebony and marble around him, he felt that he did not belong in such surroundings and was about to leave when his older self appeared. At last you are here, the man said. I have been expecting you. You have? said Hassan, astounded. Of course, because I visited my older self just as you are visiting me. It has been so long that I had forgotten the exact day. Come, dine with me. The two went to a dining room, where servants brought chicken stuffed with pistachio nuts, fritters soaked in honey, and roast lamb with spiced pomegranates. The older Hassan gave few details of his life. He mentioned business interests of many varieties, but did not say how he had become a merchant. He mentioned a wife, but said it was not time for the younger man to meet her. Instead, he asked young Hassan to remind him of the pranks he had played as a child, and he laughed to hear stories that had faded from his own memory. At last, the younger Hassan asked the older, How did you make such great changes in your fortune? All I will tell you right now is this. When you go to buy hemp from the market and you are walking along the street of black dogs, do not walk along the south side as you usually do. Walk along the north. And that will enable me to raise my station? Just do as I say. Go back home now. You have rope to make. You will know when to visit me again. Young Hassan returned to his day and did as he was instructed. 
keeping to the north side of the street even when there was no shade there. It was a few days later that he witnessed a maddened horse run amok on the south side of the street directly opposite him, kicking several people, injuring another by knocking a heavy jug of palm oil onto him, and even trampling one person under its hooves. After the commotion had subsided, Hassan prayed to Allah for the injured to be healed and the dead to be at peace, and thanked Allah for sparing him. The next day, Hassan stepped through the gate of years and sought out his older self. Were you injured by the horse when you walked by? He asked him. No, because I heeded my older self's warning. Do not forget, you and I are one. Every circumstance that befalls you once befell me. And so, the elder Hassan gave the younger instructions, and the younger obeyed them. He refrained from buying eggs from his usual grocer and thus avoided the illness that struck customers who bought eggs from a spoiled basket. He bought extra hemp and thus had material to work with when others suffered a shortage due to a delayed caravan. Following his older self's instructions spared Hassan many troubles, but he wondered why his older self would not tell him more. Who would he marry? How would he become wealthy? Then, one day, after having sold all his rope in the market and carrying an unusually full purse, Hassan bumped into a boy while walking on the street. He felt for his purse, discovered it missing, and turned around with a shout to search the crowd for the pickpocket. Hearing Hassan's cry, the boy immediately began running through the crowd. Hassan saw that the boy's tunic was torn at the elbow, but then quickly lost sight of him. For a moment, Hassan was shocked that this could happen with no warning from his older self, but his surprise was soon replaced by anger, and he gave chase. He ran through the crowd, checking the elbows of boys' tunics, until, by chance, he found the pickpocket crouching beneath a fruit wagon. Hassan grabbed him and began shouting to all that he had caught a thief, asking them to find a guardsman. The boy, afraid of arrest, dropped Hassan's purse and began weeping. Hassan stared at the boy for a long moment and then his anger faded and he let him go. When next he saw his older self, Hassan asked him, Why did you not warn me about the pickpocket? Did you not enjoy the experience? asked his older self. Hassan was about to deny it, but stopped himself. I did enjoy it, he admitted. In pursuing the boy with no hint of whether he'd succeed or fail, he had felt his blood surge in a way it had not for many weeks. And seeing the boy's tears had reminded him of the prophet's teachings on the value of mercy, and Hassan had felt virtuous in choosing to let the boy go. Would 
you rather I had denied you that then? Just as we grow to understand the purpose of customs that seemed pointless to us in our youth, Hassan realized that there was merit in withholding information as well as in disclosing it. No, he said, it was good that you did not warn me. The older Hassan saw that he had understood. Now, I will tell you something very important. Hire a horse. I will give you directions to a spot in the foothills to the west of the city. There, you will find, within a grove of trees, one that was struck by lightning. Around the base of the tree, look for the heaviest rock you can overturn, and then dig beneath it. What should I look for? You will know when you find it. The next day, Hassan rode out to the foothills and searched until he found the tree. The ground around it was covered in rocks, so Hassan overturned one to dig beneath it, and then another, and then another. At last, his spade struck something besides rock and soil. He cleared aside the soil and discovered a bronze chest filled with gold dinars and assorted jewelry. Hassan had never seen its like in all his life. He loaded the chest onto the horse and rode back to Cairo. The next time he spoke to his older self, he asked, How did you know where the treasure was? I learned it from myself, said the older Hassan, just as you did. As to how we came to know its location, I have no explanation, except that it was the will of Allah. And what other explanation is there for anything? I swear I shall make good use of these riches that Allah has blessed me with, said the younger Hassan. And I renew that oath, said the older. This is the last time we shall speak. You will find your own way now. Peace be upon you. And so Hassan returned home. With the gold, he was able to purchase hemp in great quantity and hire workmen and pay them a fair wage and sell rope profitably to all who sought it. He married a beautiful and clever woman at whose advice he began trading in other goods until he was a wealthy and respected merchant. All the while he gave generously to the poor and lived as an upright man. In this way, Hassan lived the happiest of lives until he was overtaken by death, breaker of ties and destroyer of delights. The next generation of 
Influential Black Voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. And every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Because stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Now, let's get back to our story. That is a remarkable story, I said. For someone who is debating whether to make use of the gate, there could hardly be a better inducement. You are wise to be skeptical, said Basharat. Allah rewards those he wishes to reward and chastises those he wishes to chastise. The gate does not change how he regards you. I nodded, thinking I understood. So, even if you succeed in avoiding the misfortunes that your older self experienced, there is no assurance you will not encounter other misfortunes. No, forgive an old man for being unclear. Using the gate is not like drawing lots, where the token you select varies with each turn. Rather, using the gate is like taking a secret passageway in a palace. One that lets you enter a room more quickly than by walking down the hallway. The room remains the same, no matter which door you use to enter. This surprised me. The future is fixed, then. 
as unchangeable as the past? It is said that repentance and atonement erase the past. I have heard that too, but I have not found it to be true. I am sorry to hear that, said Bashrat. All I can say is that the future is no different. I thought on this for a while. So, if you learn that you are dead, 20 years from now, there is nothing you can do to avoid your death? He nodded. This seemed to me very disheartening, but then I wondered if it could not also provide a guarantee. I said, suppose you learn that you are alive 20 years from now. Then nothing could kill you in the next 20 years. You could then fight in battles without a care because your survival is assured. That is possible, he said. It is also possible that a man who would make use of such a guarantee would not find his older self alive when he first used the gate. Ah, I said. Is it then the case that only the prudent meet their older selves? Let me tell you the story of another person who used the gate. And you can decide for yourself if he was prudent or not. Bashrat proceeded to tell me the story, and if it pleases your majesty, I will recount it here. The tale of the weaver who stole from himself. There was a young weaver named Ajib, who made a modest living as a weaver of rugs, but yearned to taste the luxuries enjoyed by the wealthy. After hearing the story of Hassan, Ajib immediately stepped through the gate of years to seek out his older self, who he was sure would be as rich and as generous as the older Hassan. Upon arriving, in the Cairo of twenty years later, he proceeded to the wealthy Habanya quarter of the city and asked people for the residence of Ajib ibn Tahir. He was prepared if he met someone who knew the man and remarked on the similarity of their features to identify himself as Ajib's son, newly arrived from Damascus. But he never had the chance to offer this story because no one, he asked, recognized the name. Eventually, he decided to return to his old neighborhood and see if anyone there knew where he had moved to. When he got to his old street, he stopped a boy and asked him if he knew where to find a man named Ajib. The boy directed him to Ajib's old house. That is where he used to live, Ajib said. Where does he live now? If he has moved since yesterday, I don't know where, said the boy. Ajib was incredulous. Could his older self still live in the same house 20 years later? That would mean he had never become wealthy and 
His older self would have no advice to give him, or at least none Ajib would profit by following. How could his fate differ so much from that of the fortunate rope maker? In hopes that the boy was mistaken, Ajib waited outside the house and watched. Eventually, he saw a man leave the house and with a sinking heart recognized it as his older self. The older Ajib was followed by a woman that he presumed was his wife, but he scarcely noticed her, for all he could see was his own failure to have bettered himself. He stared with dismay at the plain clothes the older couple wore until they walked out of sight. Driven by the curiosity that impels men to look at the heads of the executed, Ajib went to the door of his house his own key still fit the lock, so he entered. The furnishings had changed, but were simple and worn, and Ajib was mortified to see them. After twenty years, could he not even afford better pillows? On an impulse, he went to the wooden chest where he normally kept his savings and unlocked it. He lifted the lid and saw the chest was filled with gold dinars. Ajib was astonished. His older self had a chest of gold, and yet he wore such plain clothes and lived in the same small house for twenty years. What a stingy, joyless man his older self must be, thought Ajib, to have wealth and not enjoy it? Ajib had long known that one could not take one's possessions to the grave. Could that be something that he would forget as he aged? Ajib decided that such riches should belong to someone who appreciated them, and that was himself. To take his older self's wealth would not be stealing, he reasoned, because it was he, himself, who would receive it. He heaved the chest to his shoulder and with much effort was able to bring it back through the gate of years to the Cairo he knew. He deposited some of his newfound wealth with a banker, but always carried a purse heavy with gold. He dressed in a Damascene robe and cordovan slippers, and a Kurasani turban bearing a jewel. He rented a house in the wealthy quarter, furnished it with the finest rugs and couches, and hired a cook to prepare him sumptuous meals. He then sought out the brother of a woman he had long desired from afar, a woman named Tahira. Her brother was an apothecary, and Tahira assisted him in his shop. Ajib would occasionally purchase a remedy so that he might speak to her. Once he had seen her veil slip, and her eyes were as dark and beautiful as a gazelle's. Tahira's brother would not have consented to her marrying a weaver, but now Ajib could present himself as a favorable match. 
Tahira's brother approved, and Tahira herself readily consented, for she had desired Ajib too. Ajib spared no expense for their wedding. He hired one of the pleasure barges that floated in the canal south of the city and held a feast with musicians and dancers at which he presented her with a magnificent pearl necklace. The celebration was the subject of gossip throughout the quarter. Ajib reveled in the joy that money brought him and Tahira, and for a week the two of them lived the most delightful of lives. Then one day, Ajib came home to find the door to his house broken open and the interior ransacked of all silver and gold items. The terrified cook emerged from hiding and told him that robbers had taken Tahira. Ajib prayed to Allah until, exhausted with worry, he fell asleep. The next morning, he was awoken by a knocking at his door. There was a stranger there. I have a message for you, the man said. What message? asked Ajib. Your wife is safe. Ajib felt fear and rage churn in his stomach like black bile. What ransom would you have? He asked. Ten thousand dinars. That is more than all I possess, Ajib exclaimed. Do not haggle with me, said the robber. I have seen you spend money like others pour water. Ajib dropped to his knees. I have been wasteful. I swear by the name of the prophet that I do not have that much, he said. The robber looked at him closely. Gather all the money you have, he said, and have it here tomorrow at this same hour. If I believe you are holding back, your wife will die. If I believe you to be honest, my men will return her to you. Ajib could see no other choice. Agreed, he said, and the robber left. The next day, he went to the banker and withdrew all the money that remained. He gave it to the robber, who gauged the desperation in Ajib's eyes and was satisfied. The robber did, as he promised, and that evening, Tahira was returned. After they had embraced, Tahira said, I didn't believe you would pay so much money for me. I could not take pleasure in it without you, said Ajib. And he was surprised to realize it was true. But now I regret that I cannot buy you what you deserve. You need never buy me anything again, she said. Ajib bowed his head. I feel as if I have been punished 
for my misdeeds. What misdeeds? asked Tahira, but Ajib said nothing. I did not ask you this before, she said, but I know you did not inherit all the money you gained. Tell me, did you steal it? No, said Ajib, unwilling to admit the truth to her or himself. It was given to me. Alone, then? No, it does not need to be repaid. And you don't wish to pay it back? Tahira was shocked. So you are content that this other man paid for our wedding? That he paid my ransom? She seemed on the verge of tears. Am I your wife, then? Or this other man's? You are my wife, he said. How can I be? when my very life is owed to another. I would not have you doubt my love, said Ajib. I swear to you that I will pay back the money to the last dirham. And so, Ajib and Tahira moved back into Ajib's old house and began saving their money. Both of them went to work for Tahira's brother, the apothecary, and when he eventually became a perfumer to the wealthy, Ajib and Tahira took over the business of selling remedies to the ill. It was a good living, but they spent as little as they could, living modestly and repairing damaged furnishings instead of buying new. For years, Ajib smiled whenever he dropped a coin into the chest telling Tahira that it was a reminder of how much he valued her. He would say that even after the chest was full, it would be a bargain. But it is not easy to fill a chest by adding just a few coins at a time. And so, what began as thrift gradually turned into miserliness, and prudent decisions were replaced by tight-fisted ones. Worse, Ajib's and Tahira's affections for each other faded, and each grew to resent the other for the money they could not spend. In this manner, the years passed and Ajib grew older, waiting for the second time that his gold would be taken from him. What a strange and sad story, I said. Indeed, said Bashrat. Would you say that Ajib acted prudently? I hesitated before speaking. It is not my place to judge him, I said. He must live with the consequences of his actions just as I must live with mine. I was silent for a moment and then said... I admire Ajib's candor that he told you everything he had done. Ah, but Ajib did not tell me of this as a young man, said Bashrat. After he emerged from the gate carrying the chest, 
I did not see him again for another twenty years. Ajib was a much older man when he came to visit me again. He had come home and found his chest gone, and the knowledge that he had paid his debt made him feel he could tell me all that had transpired. Indeed, did, did the older Hassan from your first story come to see you as well? No, I heard Hassan's story from his younger self. The older Hassan never returned to my shop, but in his place I had a different visitor, one who shared a story about Hassan that he himself could never have told me. Bashrat proceeded to tell me that visitor's story, and if it pleases your Majesty. I will recount it here. Imagine, imagine being able to go into the future and meet yourself, and then be told that there's something you must do. There's a treasure you have to dig up. And you go and you find that treasure, you dig it up, and then you realize, well, wait a minute, that I told myself that. How I got that information, I don't know, but I was able to project that from 20 years into my future back to my former self. It's, it's, it's just, it's brilliant to me, the way in which he is weaving this tale. It is interesting to me that in this story, the, the wisdom that the older self, the older Hassan brings to the younger Hassan in terms of what he's willing to share with his younger self and what he's not. Um, you know, the, the, the older Hassan really speaks from a place of, of wisdom. And of course, Bashrat is, is the voice of wisdom itself in, in the story. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see a younger Hassan um, next to an older Hassan and all of these characters in relationship to Bashrat. <laughs> Believe me, as much as you might feel you have a handle on this story, just wait until part two. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith. She's the best in the business, y'all, with an assist from the very lovely and talented Kristen Torres. Our editing and sound design are by Misha Stanton, and they are fabulous. And my undying thanks to Ted Chang. If you enjoyed listening to The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate by Ted Chang, please look for the full collection as an audiobook titled Exhalation. Narrated by Eduardo Ballarini, Dominic Hoffman, Amy Landon, and the master himself, Ted Chang. Published by Penguin Random House Audio. Copyright 2019 by Ted Chang. And, as always, if you enjoy the podcast, please recommend an episode to a friend who you think would enjoy it. You can also leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts and include a story suggestion for us. We read them, we use them, we put them on the air. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story, or if you can't wait that long, well, 
pay. Why not indulge in the next episode right now and exclusive bonus author interviews on Stitcher Premium? Each story goes up one week early, ad-free. Just go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar, or if you're listening in Stitcher, simply tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our supervising producer is Josephine Marjorana. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and yours truly, LeVar Burton. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time. But you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.